over the uh, past year. I've preached several sermons on uh, the shortest books of the Bible. Uh, so we've looked together at Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, uh, Jude, and today will be the last uh, one uh, as we turn to the Old Testament book of Obadiah. Uh, you can find that after the book of Amos and before the book of Jonah. It'll also be on your screen if you're having difficulty uh, locating it. And as uh, we read this passage, one uh, helpful clue to understanding uh, what you're reading is that uh, references to the, uh, uh, the four J's of Jacob, Judah, Joseph, and Jerusalem, they're all talking about one group of people. Uh, Obadiah is talking about the people of God. He's just using some different names for that. And then references to the two E's, Edom and Esau, are both to the same second uh, group of people. And we'll uh, look at who they are and what that means uh, during the course of the sermon. So let's look together at the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your, mount, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, 
for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to a text that is uh, unfamiliar to many of us, we would ask for your help, recognizing our own weakness, recognizing our own limitations of understanding. But Lord, I also pray this, uh, recognizing that this is a a text um, that I'm sure Satan despises. Uh, For Lord, in it you declare your great victory. And so I pray that as Satan would seek to undermine your message, uh, that you, Lord, would thwart him again, and that you would cause your word to be at work uh, in the lives and hearts of those whom you've called. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke these words in 1965 in Selma, Alabama. Uh, And Dr. King referenced the idea of the arc of history to communicate his optimism that the civil rights movement would successfully achieve its goal of recognizing the equality of all men before the law. The idea of Uh, history having a moral arc and moving in a uh, particular or definite direction is one that's been picked up in a common conversation. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have heard people say things like, so-and-so is going to end up on the wrong side of history. And the idea, of course, behind this is is that history is is surging forward and that there is a right side and there is a wrong side uh, to history. History will justify certain people and not others. The underlying idea is that we'd better get on board with the right cause or the right side before it's too late. Consider how uh, this rhetoric has been used in discussions over legalizing same-sex marriage, for example. Uh, Proponents could point to the unmistakable momentum toward legalizing same-sex marriage. Uh, They called on others to jump on the bandwagon as it picked up speed, lest you be left behind. And there's something powerful, we have to admit, about this appeal. A few of us like being in a a vocal uh, minority, and no one likes being shown they're wrong. And there's a problem, though, with this way of thinking. Appearances can be deceiving. For example, if you were alive in America in the 1920s, uh, there is a a reasonable chance that you supported a surging social theory uh, that uh, was said to be able to improve communities and uh, uh, increase health and reduce social problems. It was a theory promoted by presidents and prime ministers and the wealthiest people of the day. It was a theory taught in classrooms and laws were passed supporting it. The Supreme Court upheld aspects of it. The movement was the eugenics movement. It was a despicable movement that thought that though through sort of selective breeding, we could have a pure human species that was untainted by uh, um, racial issues or intellectual disabilities or the like. That's what was thought. 
we were in the 1920s and you opposed eugenics, someone could have pointed to all sorts of things to make the case you're going to be on the wrong side of history. So far, at least, thankfully, this has not been the, the case. Uh, the appearance of an Im- the imminent victory of the eugenics movement uh, was deceptive. Now, Obadiah would agree with the deceptive nature of appearances. Obadiah was written when God's enemies were riding high and God's people were uh, feeling low. It appeared that Judah, God's people, they were going to be on the wrong side of history. They had been uh, crushed uh, by the Babylonians and now they were in uh, captivity and God's enemies, they were gloating. It was a good day for them. And Obadiah speaks to God's people and God's enemies to make a simple point. That no matter how things look right now, God's judgment will tear down those who set themselves against God's people. And therefore, Obadiah will show us the only way to be on the right side of history is to join yourself with God and his people. So Obadiah speaks a helpful word to us as Christians tonight. Don't interpret the arc of history according to appearances because a great reversal is coming. This is a warning to the person who's here tonight, and maybe you're, you're not a believer, but it's a comfort to the church. Instead of judging by appearances, Obadiah explains for us the arc of history according to God's perspective. And since God is the author and overseer of history, he's the only uh, reliable interpreter or guide to knowing what the right side of history is and what that means. And so our path this evening through this unfamiliar text will have four stops along the way. First, we'll look at a sibling rivalry, then God's enemies, and then God's judgment, and finally, God's kingdom. So a sibling rivalry, God's enemies, God's judgment, and then God's kingdom. Now, if you grew up with brothers, as I did, I have two uh, younger brothers, you know that the relationship between brothers can sometimes be a combative, let's just say, okay? Uh, and to understand the vision of Obadiah, we need to remember that this is a story of two brothers and a promise. The special promise is the promise which God made to Abraham. As part of God's plan to rescue uh, a world that had fallen into sin, God entered into a covenant relationship uh, with Abraham. And God promised Abraham that his family would be the one through whom God would redeem the world. And so in Genesis 12, God uh, speaks to Abraham and he tells him this. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you're going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor those who curse you. And I will be, and, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in embryonic form, this is a promise of salvation it would, salvation would come from Abraham's line. A Messiah would come through Abraham's line to bring blessing to the world. And so there's a, a key principle that's at work here, and it's one uh, that the Apostle Paul helps us to understand. If you're to experience the blessing of God, then you must believe the promise of God. And that promise was the promise of the coming Messiah. Paul says in Galatians 3, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so this is a story not about blood, but about promise. And the promise was not about the Jews as as an ethnic people, but it was about Jews and Gentiles as a believing people. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, Paul goes on to say. 
Now, this promise came to Abraham and then to his son Isaac, uh, and Isaac would eventually have two sons, brothers named Esau and Jacob. And these brothers, they were fighting uh, right from the start. We're told that even in the womb, uh, Jacob and Esau struggled uh, within Rebekah, their mother. And the Lord tells Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God had chosen the younger brother, uh, Jacob, to be the one through whom this promise of blessing, this promise of salvation would come to the world. This wasn't because Jacob was particularly good, as you know. In fact, Jacob had many shortcomings. But it was because God had chosen to show his his grace through Jacob, uh, whom he would later rename Israel. In this relationship between Jacob, and uh, uh, who's the brother of promise, and Esau, uh, continues to be quite fractious. Esau sells his birthright to Jacob in a moment of desperation. He has his blessing, uh, uh, his birthright blessing, uh, stolen uh, from his father by a conniving Jacob. And Esau hates Jacob, loathes him. And so Jacob takes off and he runs away to another land. Eventually, as the story goes, uh, Jacob and Esau are reconciled. At least they they make up and and God blesses both Esau and, and Jacob. And their families grow and their possessions grow. And the land that they're living in uh, can't take it any longer. And so Esau makes a decision uh, that he's going to move to the hilly region south of the Dead Sea. And Esau's descendants would come to be known as Edom. But throughout the Old Testament, we see this ongoing struggle between uh, the the, uh, children of Jacob, Israel, the children of Promise, and Esau, and his descendants, Edom. They scuffle in the desert when God leads the people out of the the promised land in the Exodus. Uh, Israel asks for permission to pass through uh, the land of Edom, and Edom says, nope. They they pull their troops up to intimidate uh, Israel. They won't let Israel uh, pass through. There's various uh, military back and forth between uh, the two groups. King Saul defeats the Edomites, we read about in 1 Samuel 14. King David strikes down 18,000 Edomites in a single battle. And he installs military bases in in Edom. These brothers, uh, or these brother nations, don't like each other very much, is the picture that we get as we read through the Old Testament. And here's why this backstory matters for us understanding what God is saying in Obadiah. Obadiah is a prophet uh, of Judah from the line of Jacob. And in 586 BC, Babylon attacks and defeats Jerusalem. And we know that this was God's devastating judgment against his people because of their sin. It it was a a devastating event, a traumatic event. It was like the recent October 7 attacks in Israel that we uh, witnessed, but only on a larger scale. The army army of Babylon uh, comes in, uh, they lay siege to Jerusalem, Uh, children are are starving, they're killed before their parents, Uh, many others are destroyed, and a great many uh, of the people are taken from the land uh, and they're taken off uh, to Babylon. So it's a devastating event, a devastating moment in Israel's history. But that's not how the Edomites saw it. To the Edomites, this was a glorious day right? Their younger brother was finally getting what he deserved. Finally. There was singing and celebrating in the streets. Uh, That's what we see in verses uh, 10 to 14. 
As the Babylonians descended upon Jerusalem, God charges Edom in verse 11, you stood aloof. As Jerusalem was plundered and pillaged, uh, as she was treated like spoils of war, Edom joined in the assault. Edom showed himself to belong to the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. The Edomites gloated over the misfortune of their brother and rejoiced in his ruin. There had been centuries of conflict and subjugation, but now with glee, Edom looked on upon the suffering and stumbling of Judah. In fact, if you read Psalm 137, it's a song written by the Jewish people in captivity. They explicitly pray, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, speaking of the Edomites, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. These Jews in exile remember how Edom was there celebrating, say, tear it down. Edom was the sneering kid standing behind the bully taking cheap shots. They were the online troll liking the footage of the devastation on their social feed. And in verse 13, God accuses Edom of assisting the plunder and looting of the city. They, they were kicking Judah when Judah was down. Verse 14, while Jews attempted to flee, what did the Edomites do? They blocked the way of escape. They turned escaping Jews over to Babylon, uh, Babylon and these attackers. Edomites were op uh, opportunists. They, they saw an opportunity here. The tides of history were, were changing. Uh, the misfortunes of Judah showed that to be the case, uh, they thought. The so-called people of God were losers. This proved it. Why not get in a few well-earned shots as Judah's ship went down? They'd been waiting for this. Judah was just going to become a, a historical footnote anyway. Or at least that's what Edom thought. This was the first of Edom's sins. He engaged in violence against his brother. But there's another sin that Obadiah draws our attention to, and that's Edom's pride. Really, Edom's pride took the form of a, a carnal security. We see this in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Now, the region in which the Edomites lived was... Uh, sort of characterized by rocky, craggy hills. Uh, you, can, um, uh, uh, you can Google photos of the World Heritage Site Petra. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, pictures of that. Uh, there's, there's temples carved into these uh, cliff faces. Uh, if you want a less um, a cultured description of what it looked like, think uh, Star Wars and the mountains of Tatooine, okay? Uh, it's sort of like that, very craggy, okay? And this was where Edom uh, was, and there was a great sense of, of security for Edom as they were tucked up in these hills. They felt untouchable, safe, out of reach. The text tells us they felt like an, an eagle that was soaring in the sky. No predator could touch them there. And no doubt this sense of security emboldened Edom in its violence toward Judah. They were in a position of strength. Judah was in a position of increasing weakness. They thought they had nothing to fear as they set themselves against God's chosen people. But they were wrong. And this brings us to our third point, God's judgment. This is why God speaks through Obadiah. He speaks a word of warning and judgment against Edom. No matter how removed from danger Edom felt, God declared, 
I will bring you down. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, God says, and you shall be cut off forever. Obadiah speaks here of God's future judgment. But what does God's judgment against his enemies look like? Well, we need to consider three things from our text. First, God's judgment is final. It's permanent. We see this in verses 9 and 10. There's a final judgment that God's going to bring upon his enemies that will be the end of the matter. There will be no second chances, no do-overs, no retakes. When God's final judgment comes against his enemies, it will come with a period, full stop, no commas. Secondly, God's judgment is exhaustive. It's full in its extent. God uses the example of thieves and gatherers in verses 5 and 6 to amplify this point. If someone breaks into your house at night, God says, he steals some stuff. He doesn't steal everything. He steals what he needs. When someone goes picking grapes in the field, he takes some grapes, but some grapes are left over. By contrast, God says, when I come in judgment, I will not be like the thief. I will not be like the gatherer overlooking some. His judgment against Edom will be exhaustive. He says there will be no holes in the net. His judgment will wipe Edom out. From the greatest to the least, every man from Mount Esau will be cut off. God will not relent. But not just Edom, this is the third aspect of God's judgment to note. God's judgment is broad. God's judgment is against all who do not belong to his people. Verses 1 to 14 of of Obadiah's prophecy focus on Edom specifically, but in verse 15 we see the day of God's judgment expands to include all the nations. Though Edom had, had drunk what they thought was the cup of victory on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, they along with the rest of the nations will be forced to swallow the cup of God's wrath. God's judgment is against all who stand against his people, Obadiah says. Judah may be in exile, but God turns to Edom here and says, don't think you've won. Don't think you can escape. My judgment is coming. Now, what's significant is that God's promise of judgment is true, but it is also not yet fully realized. It's true that Edom has been cut off. Uh, If you've done a a geography test of the Middle East recently, right, you're not going to be able to point to uh, Edom on the map anywhere. It's no more. Edom experienced military defeats in the 5th century, in the 3rd century, and in the 2nd century. In the 2nd century, they were defeated by Judas Maccabeus, and the Edomites were effectively swallowed up by the Jewish people. So much so that by the 1st century, as one scholar said, Edom as a people fades from history. They're gone. The prophecy is true. But this prophecy is not just about Edom. The day of the Lord in verse 15 is a reference to the future day of judgment on all nations, not just Edom. The day of the Lord refers to the time in which the Lord will break into history to deal decisively with sin. And so for this reason, we need to realize that Obadiah is not just warning Edom, but he has a warning for us here today. Obadiah's point is that there's, there's two groups of people, and there's only two groups of people. On the one hand, there's, there's those who are, are people of the promise. There are those who are, are true heirs of the promised blessing, uh, that, the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Obadiah's day, this was those who looked ahead to the Messiah who was uh, to come. Today, it's those who look to the Messiah who has come. 
and who's coming again to Jesus, the promised rescuer of Abraham's line. Jesus is the dividing line of history between the children of promise and this second group. The second group are those who reject or who slight the promise. This group's referred to as the nations by Obadiah in verse 15. Let me be clear, if you're not part of Jacob's line, the the family of faith uh, who's trusting in God's Messiah, then you belong to this group, at least right now. And you need to hear this warning, God's judgment looms over you. And so if you've not trusted in the promise of God, not trusted in the, the promised Messiah of God, then hear this warning. God's judgment is coming. And it's coming for you if you're not a child of the promise, if you're not a child of God through faith in the promised rescuer of God. Now, maybe you're here this evening and you're someone who's considering the claims of Christianity. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're taking the brave step, the courageous step to consider what does the Bible say? What does that mean? Is this true? Or maybe you're here this evening and you've grown up in the church, but you've not yet trusted in Christ. You've not yet confessed Him as your Lord. Although Obadiah has hard words uh, to hear, these are good words for you if you would accept them and act upon them. They're like a tornado siren warning you to flee uh, to safety before the coming storm. But for the siren to be a help, it needs to be heeded. Don't be like Edom, assessing your situation by your current circumstances, thinking, I feel pretty secure, feel pretty safe, thinking, who's going to bring me down? God says, I will. I will. Appearances are deceiving. You may think that you're quite safe where you are now and how you are now, but there's a great reversal coming, Obadiah says. God promises it. And those unbelieving people who stand outside of Abraham's line of promise stand under the curse which was promised. God says, you're going to end up on the wrong side of history. Christ has come and he will come again. And when he comes again, his judgment will be executed with exhaustive precision. And if you in unbelief choose to align yourself with the enemies of God rather than the Messiah of God, you will no longer have any bridge to happiness. You'll be cut off forever from God as a source of blessedness and joy and peace. And on that day, he will not relent in executing his judgment. He will not grow tired, Obadiah says. There will be no do-overs, no second chances. But you will then get what your sins deserve. Sins which were so costly that they, the only the sacrifice of the Son of God are sufficient to pay for them. Yet Obadiah says that day is near, but does not say that day is here. This coming day, says one scholar, overshadows all of human history, and hence it is always near. This judgment, though, on you is inevitable except for one thing. There's but one way to escape this inevitable, inexhaustible judgment, and that's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by turning to Him. Obadiah speaks of some who are on Mount Zion in the city of God who escaped this judgment. Those who have escaped are those who in faith have cast themselves upon the Lord despite whatever circumstances uh, or, or appearances, whatever appearances may have been. They didn't escape because they were lucky or because they were better behaved. 
Uh, not in the least. Judah was, was embarrassed by Babylon precisely because they were sinful. But let me summarize plainly what Obadiah is saying through the lens of the New Testament. You and I can be rescued from the judgment of God that our sins deserve by faith in the Lord Jesus and by turning to him in repentance. Jesus is the promised deliverer from Abraham's line. If we slight him, we will be judged as Edom was. But if we trust in him, in him we shall be blessed. Now this blessing is our fourth and final point, God's kingdom. Obadiah expresses part of what that blessing will be in verses 19 and 21. The people of God shall enjoy the victory of God in the kingdom of God. This ends the other half of that great reversal which I, I spoke about. The gloating enemies of God's people will receive judgment, certain judgment. And God's people, though, shall receive a holy kingdom. Now, there's various places referenced in verses 19 to 20, uh, which you may have noticed, and they might not mean very much to you, but they're there to communicate a single point, that God's people will receive the kingdom that was promised to them. Obadiah's focus is not on the literal, uh, physical uh, space described, uh, but on what those spaces represent, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a heavenly country, the city that is to come, whose designer and builder is God. Church in the Old Testament in Obadiah's day was in a bad spot. From a worldly perspective, it would have been hard to be optimistic about the future, right? Judah was crushed militarily. Uh, they had been ripped from their land. They were homeless. They were friendless. They were powerless. As they passed their days in captivity, they appeared relegated to the ash heap of history. It was a thoroughly discouraging state of affairs for the church. Sort of like today, really. 50 years ago, 90% of the American population claimed to be Christian. Now, you can do it what you want with those statistics. I know there's all sorts of questions about them. But it's 64% today. If demographers are correct, it'll be closer to 40% 50 years from now. By contrast, those same demographers suggest that the religiously unaffiliated, the nuns, may be a larger population in 50 years than those who are self-identifying as Christians. We could also point to the fact that biblical views on abortion, sexuality, and the family are shared less and less, and that uh, various uh, legal uh, things have actually uh, enshrined worldviews that are hostile uh, to Christianity. We could point to Christianity being used as a cheap laugh line by comedians and columnists. If all the religions and all the worldviews in the world were horses in a horse race, and you, you just said to someone, I want you to pick a winner. Who's going to win this race? You just pick someone at random to decide. They wouldn't pick Christianity. But appearances are deceiving. Appearances don't consider the God who orders all of human history according to his sovereign plan. And this God, he speaks to Obadiah to give us the program that there is a great reversal that is coming. On that day, God's people, once exiled, will be home. Finally, home. We shall no longer live as people who are out of place. Consider for a minute all the things that make Christianity seem weak and beleaguered now. The Christian at work, in, or at work or in the classroom who's ridiculed for holding to the Bible. The church that's persecuted and driven into hiding by oppressive rulers. The fact that Christianity is so oftentimes a, a punching bag and a source of jokes. That awful feeling that so many of us have that 
uh, coercive power of someone bigger than us is, is pressuring us to try and abandon what we believe to be true. Well, the great reversal that Obadiah speaks of is that all of this is going to be upended. For however meager things look now, those who belong to the Lord by faith will possess a kingdom. Now, just a few things worth noting about this kingdom. It'll be holy. There's going to be nothing evil or impure or wicked in it. All that's bad or immoral, all the things that, that plague this life now will be gone, including our own sin, we see in verse 17. Neither shall there be any enemies or threats in the kingdom. The enemies of God, the, the nations, shall be as though they've never been. Verse 16, Satan and those who are in the employ of Satan, who hate Christ and hate his church, they'll be finally defeated. God's people shall rule with him. In verse 21, saviors or, or deliverers, sort of hearkening back to the language of judges, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, he says, they're going to sit on thrones in judgment under him in the new heavens and the new earth. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the kingdom, expands this even further to say that the saints, that is Christians, will judge the world. Think of it. The people who have endured suffering with and for Christ, who have been thought so little of in this world, now elevated to reign with the Lord Jesus. And the rule which you and I as Christians shall exercise is not unto ourselves, but under the Lord Jesus himself. For this kingdom, Obadiah concludes, shall be the Lord's. Yes, Jesus sits on the throne, ruling and reigning even now. But on that day, the day that Obadiah speaks of, every one of his foes will fully and finally be defeated. And all evil and all unbelief will be dealt with, and we shall turn to him, we shall turn to Jesus and we shall say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and you shall reign forever and ever. This is Obadiah's message to us. Appearances are deceiving. History examined without the benefit of revelation would paint a bleak picture for the church. But here's the thing. God has spoken and we need to listen. He said that a day is coming when judgment shall bring his enemies down and grace shall lift his friends up. It's the great reversal. Obadiah would have agreed with Dr. King when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The justice of God who will rightly judge his enemies and graciously lift up his friends. And this is good news for all of us who trust in our Lord Jesus. And it's good news for you if you would believe in him today too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> as we think on this passage, it is a, a frightful and a terrible thing to think of the judgment that our sins deserve. That Lord, if you would not show grace that the, this inexhaustible, this full, this final, this broad judgment would come crashing down on our heads and Lord, we would have to say that we deserve it. And yet we thank you that you've broken into history, that you made promises to Abraham, that you kept those promises, that you orchestrated all of history such that the offspring of Abraham, Jesus would come and to win salvation and redemption and forgiveness of sins for us, that we might be spared the judgment of uh, your righteous judgment 
for that is righteous or that that has has come down upon our righteous savior for us lord i pray that if there's anyone here who has not believed in Christ, who have not trusted in Christ, but who stand, Lord, with um, the enemies of, of you, that you would so kindly, so graciously work in their heart to give them a faith in Christ, that they too would receive the blessings, the benefits, the joy of entering into the kingdom of our Lord, and that they too might uh, enjoy the privileges of reigning with him in glory forever. This, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response, Lo, He Comes with Clouds uh, Descending, as we uh, look forward uh, to that day. Let's sing. God receive now his blessing as you head into the week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.